there. But <clears throat> the name of the talk is, is looking toward the event horizon. And uh, we will actually try and cross a cognitive event horizon in one hour. We're gonna cover a lot of material. And if, if you if you stay with me for that hour, you're gonna come away with a, I think, a different view of what it means to look at the human future of both the collective in terms of an eschaton or a quantum evolutionary shift for the species and for you as an individual because we all face a guaranteed event horizon called death and the singularity archetype relates to both the end point of the species and the end point of the individual as a physically incarnated being. It's both, in both cases, it suggests an evolutionary transformation. So, uh, but in order to, to get through all that and to um, really be able to internalize it, um, it's going to take a lot of attention. If, if you're kind of half in and half out, you're probably better off leaving now because you may not, you may get lost. Okay? So my work on this subject began in, in 1978, uh, my formal work. Um, writing a paper in my last year of college, and we're going to have to talk over the, the music a little bit. Hopefully it'll be cool enough music to be a great background for this. And I uh, began in 1978, I was a senior in college, 20 years old, and I wrote a paper called Archetypes of the New Evolution. But the source of that paper was stuff that happened um, when I was a child, where I had a lot of paranormal experiences, and, and one event in particular that I'll mention just because it's kind of a good transition one, is, you know, I, I wrote an essay, and it's also a podcast on my website called The Path of, New, of the Numinous. It's about a path of following the creative use. You, you find things that are numinous, that light up with an uncanny significance in your environment, and then follow them down a rabbit hole. And so, some of those numinous things in, in, in my life included those, you know, life-changing paranormal and life-threatening um, paranormal experiences as a child, but then one of them was just watching a black and white movie on a black and white television in like 1969 with my dad in full daylight called Village of the Dam. It's a 1960 British science fiction movie set that involves UFOs that turn around the planet, people fall asleep when they wake up, all the women are pregnant, their pregnancies quickly come to term, they give birth to these strange children with golden eyes who form a telepathic network. And when I watched this movie, it was like an electric shock I could feel throughout my entire body. It was a, an ontological shock. I knew this was somehow related to my life's work and to um, something of the deepest possible significance. It would be like a religious experience. So what exactly does that does it mean? So um, it, this is going to be challenging. But okay. Um, what exactly is I'm trying to talk? What could it possibly mean? Well, when I was 20 and started to try to look into what this experience had in common, what the underlying pattern was, my mom was a psychologist, said, we should look into Carl Jung and his idea of the archetypes. And so I went up to the second floor of the college library here, this impressive black volume, the Princeton Golden edition of the works of Jung. But I'm kind of looking at them skeptically. Here's this guy Well, 
And so I, I started looking through that book, and I see at the end, it's like he, he wrote the book near the end of his life, and um, at the end of it is his epilogue, and then there is like a supplement after the epilogue, it's like he couldn't let go of the subject, and then after the second epilogue, there's a, or the first second supplement, there's another supplement. Well, in that last supplement, Jung analyzes a science fiction novel called The Midwich Cuckoos. Well, I just happen to know that The Midwich Cuckoos was the novel the movie Village of the Damned was based on. So here, Jung, almost like a hologram of a wizard bearing a torch, seems to step out of the bookshelf and say, yeah, I was interested in that one too. And here's what I thought, which had a lot of parallels to where I was kind of going with it. And so I was able to stand on the shoulders of this giant figure who had done the, the uh, heavy lifting of understanding how archetypes work and how the collective unconscious works and sort of pick up where he left off. And he left off only because he was going to die And so, anyway, um, here is, here is the, uh, the present book. And uh, it's called uh, Looking Toward the Event Horizon. And so what exactly is an event horizon and what does it mean to cross an event horizon. Well, when you cross an event horizon, you're stepping across a magic doorway, a threshold. I mean, this, this happens when, for example, you take in an gym. It happens every night when you go to sleep. And the physics of the waking time suddenly shift, and now you're in the physics of the dream time. That's an event horizon. When we're born is an event horizon. When you die is an event horizon. And when you um, cross, when, when there's a cross an event horizon, it's, it's a rupture of plain experience, okay? All, many, many core attributes of what it means to be you um, change. And those things include things like time, sex, gender, body, ego, money, territory, nation state. So it is a profound ontological shock to cross an event horizon. And the singularity archetype is a kind of map from the collective unconscious about that event horizon. And the event horizon has two aspects, because it's not like the fractal, the small part recapitulates the whole. Well, the small part is the individual, the individual's life cycle. And the large part is the life cycle of the species. And those parallel. So um, the, what eschaton is to the species, the end of the species, and, and the average lifespan of the species is only 100,000 years, from a million species to a million years. Of course, we're the species that's helping to lower the average. And uh, but and so, so it, it, it definitely runs out at some point, um, or ends, or goes through a quantum transformation of some sort. And similarly, you know, in probably less than a hundred years, so will, will most of us. And um, this event horizon um, is something that we look anxiously toward in a lot of ways. People look toward, you know, what's going to happen when they die. People know what's going to happen in the future of the species. Well, one of the most unreliable of human enterprises, even more unreliable than dieting and romance, is prophecy. Prophecy is something that human beings keep coming back to, and yet we really suck at it. And um, especially apocalypticists, that they've all been disconfirmed so far. That's a hundred percent failure rate. I mean, what human endeavor continues with a 100% failure rate, and yet it still keeps happening. And if we have time, I'm going to talk about the psychology of apocalypticism, which is really about the dark side of the singularity archetype, because any archetype can inspire, but it can also possess, it can pathologize. Okay? So one of the pathologies that can happen when it pathologizes is you become an apocalypticist. That's an example of archetype 
okay? So you can kind of like keep staring at this movie projector screen at all these different news headlines flashing by, but if you really want to find out what's going on, you need to turn the inner eye back into the psyche, which is the source of all this. It's like Carl Jung said, there is no such thing in nature as a hydrogen bomb. That is man's doing. That is psyche's doing. Psyche is the great danger and also the great possibility. And so we need to, to get out of all the extroverted materialism out there and look back into the source of all these things that are happening and its deepest source code, um, which are revealed in myths. And I apologize for the notes. There's just so much to cover here that... Um, so, one of the things about our heading toward an evolutionary event horizon is um, people sometimes take a dark view. One of my close friends, Rob Reggie, wrote a wonderful book called Paranoia, the opposite of Paranoia. And actually, most more good things are happening than bad. We probably have the lowest war capita death rate, um, per capita death rate in thousands of years. But what we should expect as we approach the evolutionary event horizon is novelty will be like using novelty in the sense that Terrence McKenna did, he got it from Alfred North Whitehead, and um, meaning that the, the creation of new forms is density of interconnectedness. And right now we have the most density of interconnected objects, artifacts that were created, the internet, and of course it was created by the most densely interconnected object we know of the human brain. So we see that um, organic evolution and technological evolution parallel. I'm not a, uh, a transhumanist technological singularity person. Um, they, um, I think, are more materialists and underestimate the parallels uh, that are going on in organic evolution. Okay. Uh, by the way, in terms of uh, in, in, in the singularity architect, I just want to give a, a shout out to uh, Michael Grosso, who's a philosopher in the 1980s. It's almost the same conclusion. It's called the archetype of death and enlightenment. He also related to near-death experience, parapsychology, evolution, and so forth. So, and he's a philosophy professor, chairman of the philosophy department. So I'm not the only crazy one. Also, a lot of what Terence McKenna included, um, and these guys, are, I, I had already written my paper before they discussed about stuff now, or before I heard of them. Um, um, but we all seem to be onto the same kind of um, set of ideas and, and what might be happening. And so relating it to the cargo cult, we can see a lot, whole lot of uh, our culture and a lot of the art out there as part of the cargo cults of the singularity archetype. Some of it unconscious, um, like apocalypticism, and some of it conscious. Okay, so before we get into what the singularity archetype is, let's talk for a minute about what archetypes are. Uh, most of you have probably heard of them, but just a little quick review and maybe a couple points if you haven't heard. Archetypes are uh, primordial images. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with some of them, like the hero, the crone, um, the um, devouring mother, um, the um, anima figure, um, and so forth. And, uh, um, but archetypes are patterns, but they are also agencies. They are like entities. They are subjects, not objects. They, they have the ability to run us. And um, when you meet people, um, usually they're, they're often possessed by one or more archetypes. So archetypes can be said to have intentions, and they're like powerful, living things. And um, also, however, they are um, notoriously impossible to define definitively. 
because they're living things. And if, 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 if you ask me, if I asked you to come up with the, you know, a 10 sentence definition of who you are, you realize it is a profound truncation of whoever you are. I mean, if you work with those 10 sentences for the rest of your life. Um, and so the archetype that can't be named um, is not the true archetype. So when we look at the singularity archetype, Think of it this way, think of, uh, we're going to be looking at an image that's inside a round, brilliant diamond. And if you've ever looked close up at a round, brilliant diamond, it's very intense and refractive and prismatic. So you go up to one facet of this giant diamond at a time and look at a distorted view of this image inside of it. It's like looking at a series of cubistic images. But if you start looking at it through every facet, eventually you start to coalesce what the whole will be like. And we're going to take a look at three examples of a singularity archetype so that you can at least try and triangulate on it and, and get an idea of, of what it is. Um, but I might start with a, a slightly abstract, this is as abstract as we're going to get here, abstracted definition of it, just so you have that logically to hold on to before we give examples of it. So generally when the singularity archetype manifests, it may manifest as a farmer's visionary, somebody having a good experience, somebody taking a psychotropic, um, a, 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 a creative person um, probing into their own unconscious, and there'll be some kind of rupture of plane experience, a shock will occur, an ontological shock that may make the ego feel that its survival is threatened, um, and it may actually um, rupture the ego. And um, it will profoundly punctuates all forms of equilibrium. Um, the, the, um, what will seem like a, a, a devastating apocalyptic thing in many cases will then be revealed to be a quantum trans evolutionary event. And, uh, and so therefore to the self, it is experienced positively as, a, as a, something transformational and metamorphic. Um, that metamorphosis will often be associated with spirals um, you can see the DNA spiral around his eye. This is a symbol I've created uh, for the singularity archetype. Um, it will be associated with strange lights, with eyes, and with corporeal transcendence. The emergence of what we could call the glorified body. Christian, it's a body that has transcended the limits of corporal reality. Um, as you see happen, for example, when somebody merges with their avatar, the avatar, crossing such a big horizon. Another thing that happens is what I call homo gestalt, a term I got from the science fiction writer, Theodore Sturgeon, and that's a, a, um, a telepathically networked species or group, and that will tend to have a visual telepathy. However, in this group telepathy, which I actually think is more the norm in nature, and that's why I think the ego served an invaluable role to encapsulate the psyche, to create the pearl of great price individuality, but also created a lot of ego pathology while doing that. That's a whole each uh, talk in itself. But um, when, when, when all that is, is, is ruptured, um, then a visual telepathy may begin, and um, people will. Um, uh, uh, um, and, and obviously, uh, yeah, I lost my shirt. This is what happens when you look at notes, you can barely see them here. Um, well, this can occur um, during a dream. It often happens in dream times, visions, creative sessions, sometimes Kundalini episodes can lead to this. And um, what happens is when people experience the singularity archetype, when you experience any archetype, it filters through your own personal unconscious. So you may give it some weird, peculiar, individual, idiosyncratic spins. 
And of course, religious traditions do that. They have visions of the singularity archetype, but looking at their visions, you know, it could be like, you know, when we look toward the future or we look at an archetype, we're always sort of looking through a glass darkly and half of what we get back is some kind of distorted image of ourselves through a you know, kind of a warped mirror. But um, when you look at it through a religious tradition or an indigenous tradition even, um, it's kind of like looking through a stained glass window where, where your vision is segmented by lead solder and the colors are where created um, you know hundreds of years ago out of cobalt and iron oxide and this kind of thing. I rather um, look through, through the Indian technique, which is that we don't um, believe any version of it is authoritative. It's not. But we, if you look at as many as possible, start pulling out things that are idiosyncratic to single versions, and we start to sort of improve the signal to noise ratio by doing that. Okay, so let's actually um, take a look at uh, the singularity archetype as it shows up. I'll start with a very, very uh, simple dream. This is somebody at somebody at another festival, Rainbow Gathering, a young man told me a few years ago. He said he was standing out in the forest in his dream and it felt like the earth was being shaken to pieces. It felt like the end of the world. The sky got completely dark and he felt like he might die at any moment. And then suddenly there's like a break in the dark canopy of skies. A beam of sunlight comes through and then spiraling out of that beam of light is an eagle, and the eagle has in its talons a glowing golden egg, and it deposits the egg on top of a tree. Probably the shortest version of the singularity archetype I can think of, but you have it all there. You have what the ego seems dark and apocalyptic, there's a rupture of plane experience, you have the eagle, which has the best eyes in nature, coming down a beam of light and a spiral, and a spiral is, is another symbol, is, is an evolutionary symbol. And um, it deposits an egg on the top of a tree, a tree is symbol of development, the egg of that unformed potential of the species. And now we'll take a look at two more dreams that were recorded by one of Yuli's most brilliant uh, colleagues, Marie Louise Marfant. And these occurred, um, and it's important to note this because uh, you want to see that these come from very contrasting kinds of people. The first was kind of a young hippie guy. The second is um, what was described as a simple Protestant woman by Marie Louise Montfons, probably a, a, a member of the Smith um, agrarian class. And uh, in her first dream, uh, she is terrified. She's standing in the Middle East. In, in the Middle East, she's dressed pyramids nearby. It's supposed to be Jerusalem, though, but that's kind of her naive understanding of the Middle East, is that pyramids would be visible everywhere. And um, the dark wing of Satan is coming down and blotting out the sun. And that seems like an absolutely apocalyptic, terrifying thing. In the second dream, hers, her vantage shifts. She's no longer standing on the ground. She's now up in the heavens. And what looked like the dark cloak of Satan is revealed to be the white wafting cloak of God. Jesus is tainted, sort of reaching his hand out as if inviting man towards something, the viewer towards something. And she draws a white spiral of light in the sky that's oriented this way, and as Von Fon says, seems to be inviting us into another dimension. So what seemed apocalyptic is revealed as this transcendent evolutionary event, and it's associated with um, a spiral. Okay, now the third example, the last example I'll give, is much more complicated, but also might be more interesting. It comes from a completely different psyche, an astrophysicist and a famous atheist, Arthur C. Clarke, the visionary science fiction writer, in his novel Child of Zen. Well, what happens in the novel Child of Zen? Because Child of Zen was one of those numinous things that when I read it, 
I, I kind of was freaked out and shocked because I was like, how could these ideas that I thought were peculiar to my own fantasies show up in a novel written four years before I was born? Because I didn't understand about the collective unconscious at the time. Anyway, um, so in childhood's end, UFOs appear all around the Earth. They announce, you can call us the overlords. Uh, we're here to help you with your evolution and uh, to be your allies. And uh, they uh, don't interfere too much. However, they make all warfare and mass-scale violence impossible, such as technological magic, anything from a nuclear missile or artillery shell, even a bullet, is somehow returned to center. So all violence stops, pretty much. And they, they share with us all kinds of technological and scientific knowledge, which kind of puts our science to sleep, because now, why bother, you know, they're getting much more advanced stuff, you know, skipping a million steps. And there is a time of, of unprecedented peace and prosperity. However, one oddity about the appearance of the overlords is that they will not appear physically before um, mankind. And um, they, uh, yeah, from the house from. Um, so they, oh, thank you so much. Thanks. They won't appear for two generations, and people speculate, wow, they must look like, you know, hideous insects or slime or whatever. When they do appear, after two generations, 50 years, they, they step off their craft and they have giants, their, their bodies are, are giant size, and they have huge ebony wings, and they have horns, and giant tails, and, and yellow eyes, and capsules, and they look like what would demons look like from our primordial imagination. And yet, they actually are totally benign. And, and Arthur C. Clarke, even though he's kind of an atheist materialist, describes it as a race memory of the future event. It sounds a lot like the archetypes of the collective unconscious. And basically, their coming, their appearance, which was just a physiological adaptation to the conditions of the planet they came from, is associated primordially in human beings with evil because their coming represents the end of the old species. Okay, so it's a total threat to the ego and to the present equilibrium. Even though, in fact, they are here to help us through an evolutionary process. They have been sent by what Arthur C. Clarke calls the overmind, which is kind of his naturalistic God concept. It's a vast universe-wide intelligence. It's aware of where intelligence is about to undergo this kind of quantum evolutionary jump anywhere in the world. And it um, sends the overlords, who themselves are far more advanced than we are, but not able to make this jump, to act as midwives. Well, anyway, um, one of the overlords, um, what the overlords are looking for is what they call subject zero. That will be the first infant born that will be of the new type. And one of the overlords goes to the home of a man, and it sounds like the description of this man's home, um, it sounds like a prophetic anticipation of New Agers because the people there are a little bit goofy and a little bit too credulous. And when he reads through the library of books, he realizes that, wow, you know, so much of this is kind of nonsensical. But, but he's very interested in finding out anything happening paranormal because that can be an indication of this new evolution. And um, then he observes them doing a kind of seance as one of the sort of New Age entertainments. And somebody asks the Ouija board, who are you? And it spells out I-A-M-A-L-L, I-M-R. Sounds like the collective unconscious. And the overload realizes subject zero must be present. So all these notes there are kind of mediocre. 
and it, it turns out one of the women is pregnant. And she gives birth to subject zero. And um, soon after he's born, you have heart cars going by, basically the orders where the music's coming from. Um, soon after he's born, he immediately exhibits profound paranormal abilities, and all the children born after him, he's like a sea crystal, are of this new type. And then after a certain critical number of them are born, all the human beings of the old type, us in other words, become Sarah, hence the title child here today. And this is why it's threatening to the whole, the old genome. Because the old genome is over, it is a thing like a chrysalis, and it's giving birth to the new form. And when, uh, and then the children, at a certain point in their evolution, translocate and all join together in one continent, and they call it the long dance, they have to make a different kind of spiral together, or join hands. And to the last human being of the old type left alive, when they are going to cross the event horizon and join with the overmind, it looks like an aurora borealis in the sky, like a spiral of light in the sky. So notice, like, like the dreams we just saw from the simple Protestant moment, Arthur's and Clark's imagination comes up with the dark wing of Satan and the spiral of light in the sky as the, as the chance to cross the event horizon. And if anybody goes uh, up to it, uh, would anybody mind telling that Art Carter, please move on? get into some, some of the more uh, specifics of, of how um, things may change as we approach um, the event horizon of the singularity archetype. And then we'll talk about how it relates to that. So definitely hang on for that. So um, one aspect of it that is weird is that we don't have this is not something that's completely an extrapolation to the future. And by the way, this is not like a specific prediction with a time date that's saying exactly what's going to happen. It's giving us a general pattern. Just like an acorn has the general pattern of the shoe. And if you really understood acorns, you would be able to predict a lot about what kind of tree would occur. And um, if we if we understand the singularity archetype, it gives shape to the future. But there's plenty of other forms that in many, many ways these things can play out. Um, but one of the, the, the commonalities that we find in so many different versions, and there's another way right now, is a more visual means of communication and consciousness. And this is another way uh, we're experiencing this right now, uh, because of all the visual technologies that are massively rewiring our brains. I mean, not too long ago, and when my dad was born, you know, it was the silent movie era. He was born in New York City, hardly a back road, they didn't have radio stations. When the first silent movies came out, and it was a picture image of a train going into the station, people dove for their seats. And they couldn't even comprehend that this was just a representational image. When they had their first zoom lens, because they started out with just fixed focal length lenses, and they zoomed in on a woman's face, people were gasping. Her head is going to explode, it's getting bigger. They couldn't understand it. Meanwhile, I just watched like a, a Marvel Comics movie with, with like a, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, and just in the opening credits, there were all these montages and surreal dissolves and so forth. They understood it completely. So this is what's happening is a profound uh, shift for the visual, um, but still stranger things may happen um, with the visual, um, with technology, and also with some organic changes. And um, one of the things um, that makes this more visual um, aspect so important is that it's also profoundly changing the role of women. I'll leave that as a little bit of a cliffhanger, but to see the importance of the visual, um, there was something that happened 544 million years ago called the 
Cambrian explosion. In 544 million years ago, there were only three phyla of life. But then between 544 million years ago and 538 million years ago, there was this explosion of novelty and, and of new forms of life. In fact, by 538 million years ago, um, we then had 38 phyla, the same number that we have today. Now, what happened during that time? Well, there's something called the, the light switch theory um, uh, that a guy named uh, Andrew Parker came up with. He wrote a book, um, um, and I don't know the name of the book here, but um, a, a blink of the eye, I think. And um, he, he talks about this theory that, that what really happened during that period is eyes were developed. Well, as soon as you have eyes, now you can start to have a whole lot of new kind of predators. And now the prey have eyes, so they have to devise all these strategies, and they might have to camouflage themselves. All this, once you have eyes, um, everything changes. It's a huge growth of consciousness. Now an organism can assemble some kind of simulacrum of the outside world in some kind of a mind. And that creates a profound explosion. So the eye has, is, is really um, the symbol of evolution in a lot of ways. And so what's happening right now is a profound shift of hemispheric dominance. Again, you don't have to look to the future. And by the way, everything that's, that, the, that the singularity archetype sort of predicts with a near-death experience, it's just, it's just phenomenological actuality. So again, this isn't all in the future. The singularity archetype is happening now. It can be a phenomenological actuality in your ethnogen experience. People will take ayahuasca, the early anthropologists call it telepathy because they would have a consensual visual telepathic experience. And the Iowa Suero songs would seem to create a moving symphony of, of um, shapes and colors and so forth. And people would be able to comment on what they had all experienced together. So uh, it, the, the singularity archetype already occurs, but it occurs episodically. It has not yet occurred as a species-wide event. But when people have near-death experiences, um, and, and this is the age of the near-death experience for many reasons, and then first because we've started to study it, but also because resuscitation technology has been exploded. Even just in the last five or two years, I don't know if you noticed, but they can now revive some people that have been dead for hours. The, the, the boundary of death is becoming very blurred. And because we can bring people back, we can bring back these really profound reports and that, that um, kind of trumps neurological materialism because people, if I go to talk about the Pamela Williams case, people having exotic surgical procedures where they, they're, they're not only as, as they're brain dead, but they have no electrical activity, frontal lobes. Now, if you're a machine, she was having a, a rare surgical procedure called standstill, where she's hooked up to a heart lung machine, they flatline her. The heart lung machine is pumping plasma through her body, and her body has been refrigerated. Um, she has um, earbuds in her ears producing 110 decibel clicking sounds. It's called the evoke potential test to see if they can get anything off the brainstem and they couldn't. You know, state-of-the-art instrumentation, 38 people working on her. Um, her eyes are taped shut. And yet she's able to come back from that and general anesthesia and you know, everything else that would stop a brain. And, and it, a, brain, a brain had absolutely no measurable activity whatsoever. She was able to report all kinds of very specific things that were said during the surgery, um, what exotic pieces of equipment like the minus red bone, uh, bone saw looked like, it didn't look anything like a saw, and, and so forth, and as well as having profound spiritually changing your experience. It's hard to explain that it's actually impossible with neurological materials. And um, 
the materials often have a great investment in that. So, anyway, um, now that we are shifting to the right hemisphere of the visual technologies, it's changing the end of the patriarchal age. A very influential book for me was Leonard Swain's The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. What Leonard Swain was interested in, and it was something that Terence McKenna was interested in as well, and that all of us should be interested in, is there was some kind of a change that happened some 6,000 odd years ago where we went from what um, Rihanna Eisler, who wrote a seminal book of the Chalice and the Blade called Partnership Societies, to dominating societies. The iconic object went from the chalice, symbol of fertility and fertility and food and abundance, to the sword. And this ship, you know, spread across the planet like a plague and it transformed everything. And um, Terence McKenna thought it was when the arboreal plains in Africa dried up and we lost our connection to soul side and mushrooms. It's called the snow and the gate theory. But another theory is that what happened um, with, it, it, when, when societies, the trigger event, according to Leonard Schlein, I think he presents pretty convincing evidence, was the adoption of written alphabets. Well, I was an English teacher for 14 years. I'm not against written alphabets, but they caused a profound shift through the left hemisphere, the hemisphere of hierarchy and linearity and so forth. And then we became extremely left hemisphere dominant. And when we did, Women, uh, as soon as societies, are, or shortly after societies adopt written alphabets, women can no longer participate in religious rituals. Um, and they, they start to become second-class citizens and then property of husbands or owners. Um, clerics will start to wear black and white, the colors of pen and paper. Um, a document will become the ruling object. In the beginning was the word. And the document could be religious, it could be the Hammurabi code, the, the, uh, the rule of law, the DSM-5, um, Malazun Red Book. But it only seems to be that we're ruled by a, um, a document of some sort. That's the age we still live in. And, but now, uh, and, and also, just to show you how profound this is, um, do you know what the second of the Ten Commandments is? Okay, it's popularly interpreted as um, against, uh, well, I'm gonna need a flashlight. Um, the second of the Ten Commandments is about not having images. Okay, some people, some people guess that it's thou shalt not kill. Well, that's the sixth. So the second is about thou shalt not have images. Now that's kind of popularly interpreted as against. Idol worship, but when you when you read um, directly in the Torah, second of the ten commandments. Okay. Um, I think it's okay. Just show them something here. Okay. Thank you very much. This is the great thing about the gift economy is people do help out here and have cooperation. It's almost home of the self. Think of something that somebody provides it to you, sometimes you have to say. Okay? From Exodus 24, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness of anything, anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water under the earth. And if that isn't clear enough, uh, we go on to the Torah, um, which says, 
in Deuteronomy 4, 15, 18, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, lest ye corrupt yourselves, and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast of the earth, the likeness of any wounded fowl that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. Okay, so some people will try and say, well, that was just about idol worship. But you know, what's interesting is that it really says, don't make images. And there were dead about it. Um, that the word idol comes from a Latin word, idolum, and idolum derives from the Greek and what was Yahweh's first commandment to Adam? It was to name things. I put you in charge now, and now it's your job to name things, to put words over everything. So then he gave the, the era of uh, being profoundly anti-image. And all the Abrahamic days would go through an intensely anti-image phase. Okay, for example, in the 8th century, there was the most uh, people whose heads would explode if they were going to burn them, the iconoclasts. Well, the iconoclasts, I kind of mean these image, basically, were an 8th century Christian salt that were anti-image. They went around destroying paintings and busting up, you know, Christ's statues from classical antiquity, but they were so profoundly anti-image. So the more recently admitted in Abrahamic faith, the more recent will be the anti-image chain phase. Also, the more recently those people came to the so the most recent Abrahamic faith, Islam, is the most anti-Image and the most contemporarily anti-Image. And that's why they made all those beautiful Byzantium patterns and stuff, because you couldn't have images, and, and God forbid somebody in Sweden makes a cartoon of their prophet and they'll start killing people thousands of miles away. Okay? Um, but what's the most oppressively anti-Image aspect of Islam? is, um, and, and we can argue about whether this is Orthodox Islam or Tribal Islam or whatever that's in the afternoon, is the birth act, which is both anti-woman and anti-image. Because to keep somebody from having their face revealed is, is, is like a huge castration, because we are, we are face creatures. Okay, you don't know how to face like we do. We have like 135 muscles on in our face, faces. We are constantly um, performing a visual language with our facial expressions, nanosecond by nanosecond. And, um, and, and this is profoundly revealing. It tells us everything. You don't want an infant. Um, you can put any kind of a, a, a sparkly object in front of an infant, but when a, even when a kid focuses eyes, when a human face draws near, the brain lights up. That's how important the face is. So, so to erase a woman's face is, and for to be a woman is, is, a, is the ultimate expression of the patriarchal era, and it's anti-image, anti-female, anti-white hemisphere.
purely physics. But what is the iconic object of the current age? Probably not in your pockets. Pixelated screen. It's a total shape shift. It is an idioplastic artifact. In other words, it changes shape based on your ideas of what's going on here, like in a dream time. Whatever I'm obsessed with, good or bad, I'm obsessed with Japanese schoolgirls and Elsinore Moses. I can just type into Google and immediately whole websites and images of that are, 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 are going across this pixelated screen. And um, so conventionally we, we think of telepathy as I hear what you say, but that's really not better than making these little knock noises we make right now, which is the awkward way we communicate right now, or calling somebody over the phone, plus it's an invasion of privacy. What would be a more profound version of tele telepathy would be, instead of telling me about my dream, I'll be like, well, here, step into it. This, this occurs spontaneously in the rare, but documented cases of mutual dreaming, while the exaggerated community, etc. Okay. And, and you know, when something can occur once, William James has a principle, all that's necessary to disprove the notion that all crows are black, this is one white crow, okay? So if anything can happen once, think about this with anything related to the paranormal, if one mother remote from sensory information knew specifically how her kid was in trouble, well that blows open some kind of remote viewing for all time. Because if anything can happen once, then it's part of, it's allowed for in the structure of reality and it will happen again. But if you take all of those paranormal things that never happened, they would just define the outer edges of the current human performance envelope. But if all these things started to emerge collectively, we might have incredible emergent effects that we can't even conceive of. It would be like what JDS on Gay said, paraphrasing a little bit, reality is not only stranger than we think, it's stranger than we think. Of stuff we have to have for the evolutionary event horizon. Okay. Um, so near-death experiences um, have many of these features. And so this is the, the event horizon that we are all guaranteed, and I'm quite excited about it, not about some of the messy stuff that could lead up to it, like aging and all this and so forth. But death itself to me is a very um, exciting possibility. I see it as a portal shimmering up ahead. And, and so I don't really have to get too worried about what's going on in the whole soul shadow, you know. Um, Tragic magic, what's so carnival history, because I'm guaranteed we all are an escape hatch and it isn't that far away. A little further away for most of you who are quite a bit younger, but we all have had an absolute guarantee. And we also have more information about what happens when we step out of that, that magic world than we've ever had before. The, the explosion of information in the last couple of decades is just profound. And basically what, what happens when people have classic near-death experiences is they, they go through the singularity archetype. And by the way, it's important you research it, because it's discovered that not only do near-death experiences profoundly change people, and the effects only increase through time, which, which makes it seem like it is an archetype, a living agency, not just like a traumatic experience, but it can actually increase its power. But also they found, um, Dr. Kenneth Murray, um, Professor Murray's in Psychology at the University of Connecticut, has done some great research. Just researching and reading about and hearing about near-death experiences produces many of the same effects as a near-death experience. Because you can kind of recognize it from within. And maybe even have some, some submerged memory of having gone through something like that. Uh, but here's an example of um, a way that, that um, in carefully controlled studies, so the best work on 
Uh, you have experienced sitting down mobile, you write a book called Consciousness Beyond Life. If you think this is kind of a fake subject, he's a Dutch cardiologist. His work was at superb methodology, and he was published in the journal Lance, the Sweetest Mainstream Medical Journal. Okay? One of his findings was that we had as a control group people who at the Dutch hospitals who had cardiac arrest and no NDE. Well, eight years out after the experience, some had NDEs, some just had cardiac, cardiac arrest and no NDE. The people who um, had um, just the cardiac arrest and no NDE, their church attendance went up by 25%. Maybe they're starting to be worried about that. Because usually after you're death experiences, that's the last thing you'll ever worry about again. Because what you worry about is how do I get back to that? Because what people describe after you're death experience, they almost never want to come back. The only one had a 1940, everyone in 1948, he was depressed for six months. The only one who described it as like putting dirty underwear back on. Once he did release from the mortal corporeal version 1.0 body into a glorified body, this far greater, you know, aliveness and consciousness, it really sucks to be funneled back into a body that probably had some problems on, which is why I was having a weird death experience. By the way, your death experiences don't always happen to people in medical jeopardy. There's the expected death experience. If you're in a plane and it looks like it's going to crash, you may have a comprehensive near death experience with a life review, and then the plane may suddenly pull out. So you're never actually under any medical jeopardy, but you expected that you were going to die. There's also the shared death experience, where people standing around someone who's dying may share the whole near death experience with them, including their life with you. And they, they don't have an oxygen star brain, um, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, another thing that happens when people have um, near death experiences is they have profound vision. They, they, they have a telepathic awareness. Um, and often like a, a being of light that communicates them telepathically. But then they also find that they have people who have very poor eyesight in their regular bodies, they find that they have sparkling, super high rates, 360 degree vision, or spherical vision, where they can count the number of dust particles on the top of the lights in the surgical amphitheater, but also look at the cracks in the tiles under the surgeon's shoes. Um, they, 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 they then, um, and then they'll have the autostopic experience, so they're point of view outside of their body, looking down on it, and then they realize there's no autostopic point of view, that this eyeball floating in space, that they can go anywhere, just like you discover in dreams, that you can transcend gravity, and you can fly, and so forth. And um, they may report objects uh, on the tops of the roofs of the hospital, and then the later that those objects will be found, and so forth. And so forth. So, um, We've got five minutes left. Let me see what's absolutely must be said here. Um, you know, a, an example of what goes on with the glorified body and it relates to your death experience too, that's the popular culture is the Avatar. Okay, I don't remember what happens in the opening scene of Avatar, but you have a paraplegic woman named Jay. But he's in his dream body, he's flying. Okay? He's having an out-of-body experience. He's flying in his dream body, his glorified body. But then he has to wake up and come back to his paraplegic body. And it's one of the situations we all have some discomfort with corporate reality. And I feel there is a great unspoken of, for the most part, will in the human species. I call the will for the glorified body. And it's the deepest cause, even despite all the patriarchal things, of things like eating disorders. 
body image struggles. Um, people who he went to, in Birmingham, you never see more extreme people who went to transform the, 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 the version 1.0 mortal body than at Birmingham. The most tattooed, the most fierce, the most positive people you're ever going to meet with lights coming out of them and so forth. He desperately wants to break out of the one body, one technique rule, which would not be true, say, with digital artifacts and virtual artifacts. So you have this very unhappy world before situation. A young man in the prime of life with all that testosterone. He was a warrior, he was a soldier, he was an athlete, and now he's just got a power through his body. And at very numerous moments in that movie, we can all feel for his excitement is when he is brought up to that tank and he sees this magnificent avatar that, that he, can, he can step out finally, finally, that one body, one psyche rule. Think about having people here might be unhappy with their assigned gender or with aging or how they look, you know. Um, imagine if I were to tell you, well, instead of being able to go to and dress any way you want, actually, you have to wear a pale um, uniform the rest of your life. And in fact, um, it'll gradually wear out, and when it completely wears out, you're dead. That's basically our situation. What we would never want to be like in Mount China where we have to wear the same pajamas. We want to be able to not just wear one kind of costume, but wear one for, for the lover, another one to face an adversary, another one to do a business meeting. So, of course, we would also want to have the bodies that would suit different occasions, different sexual impulses. And, um, so in Avatar, uh, that, that's what happens. And, but he has to die first. He, he goes into a sarcophagus, coffin-like technological device, and um, his waking consciousness disappears, like in dreaming or in death. And now he passes through a tunnel of light, and now he's in his avatar. Where does the word avatar come from? It comes from Indian mythology. It's a spirit being descended into the flesh. And so that is what we are. Um, we are like spirit beings descended into the flesh. And, and we have the horizon and we are all to cross being. And when it pathologizes, it becomes the fear of death. And, and, and that often takes the form of apocalypse. Because if you're in your ego, you fear death, especially because your ego is so bound up in the social matrix. What, I'm going to die and other people are still going to be alive and nobody have to talk about me and I won't even be here and I'll have my stuff. Um, so, but if everybody dies at once, that's much more satisfying to ego. And if the kind of people I like to hang with are raptured off, new age or religious, somewhere, and the people I don't like are left behind to deal with the Antichrist or to get crushed by the New World Order or something like that, it's an all-satisfying scenario. So, the fear of death, um, because people confuse it or not, it gets projected out. And because, wow, this should all end. Okay? Um, and there was a woman um, named Elizabeth Steen who started predicting in the 1960s there was going to be this massive earthquake that was going to basically knock California into the ocean. And then all these other psychics, I think it was August 14th, 1969, all these other psychics started predicting the same date in a copycat fashion. And it was talked about even in the New York Times. It was taken so seriously. It was bigger than the Miami than the 2012. That's another bad subject. When, when that day came, unfortunately, Elizabeth Steen was not there. She died of some rare medical symptoms shortly before her prophecy did not come true. So when we confuse it or not, or we project, we make um, our own culture into a harder cause. Um, what I recommend instead is to take it as a symbol of, of, of transformation.
embrace your visual imagination, embrace a visual experience, um, embrace a more visual mode of life, like you're all doing here in, in Birmingham, embrace the power of your imagination to manifest new forms, and um, embrace the wonderful power of this singularity archetype. And I thank you on Jonathan Zapp, and my website is zapplocal.com. Um, I have some cards up here. I've also got an iPhone and Droid app version of the site. I've got my book. And uh, I guess that's about all of it all. But right now, I get free dream interpretation. If you find me walking on the plot, a free dream interpretation sign up. Hit me up for some free dream interpretation. What's the website? The website is zapplocal.com. I'll be glad to give you a card. C-A-P is my last name, and then just the word for